turn together to the book of 2 Kings, and specifically to chapter 10. Our text today is the entire 10th chapter. Begin by reading the first 17 verses to get us started with our first point, and then we will pick up the text again as we come to later points. This is the very word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Second Kings, chapter 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's throne. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city, who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and priests, until he left him. None remain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that you would show us your desire, your will, your purposes, O Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I looked at the text this week, you always know what you're going to be preaching the next week. You just look what the next chapter is or, or passage is. And perhaps my reaction was a bit perhaps as yours as you're looking at this. How are you going to squeeze something good out of this chapter? It's a lot of different kinds of bloodshed. 
a lot of horrible things going on. Why is God showing us uh, a slasher army movie? What's going on here? And I thought of something that oftentimes happened to me as, as a child. I think it's less likely today for children now with the ages of contacts and, and radial keratotomy and laser surgery, LASIK. But one of the things that you did when you were a kid in school was if you were sitting around a table of 10 or 12 of your friends, there was a good chance four, five, six of you wore glasses. And inevitably, one day you would try each other's glasses on, right? And the kid who had the worst prescription would hand it to somebody, who, the kid who had almost regular windowpane glasses, and you'd put it, wow, that's a lot. And the kid who had the bad prescription would put on the light prescription and say, I can't see anything. And you would pass them around and try and see what you could see. And I think sometimes that's what we attempt to do with the Word of God. We look at a text like this or we look at the Word of God and we try on philosophical glasses. We try on practical glasses. We try on the glasses of the age. When in reality, the only real way to understand a text like this, to see behind what's going on, is to use the glasses that the Lord himself has given to us. That great analogy that Calvin uses of the glasses of the Word of God. So that as we come to the Word of God, steeped in the Word of God, we can look and see at God's covenant. We can see God's grace, and we see God's purposes, even in the midst of what seems to be somewhat random violence. There is a purpose here in God working out his will in the kingdom of Israel. And what I want us to see is how Jehu conducts a reformation. It's not a real reformation. It's not a thoroughgoing reformation. But it is a partial reformation. It is God working his purposes through a bent stick. And the first thing that we will see is that this is not a revolution. This is not merely a political scheme. It is not just a revolution. And then as we look down through the chapter and we see Jehu dealing with the prophets of Baal, we must resist the temptation and we must understand that this is not a revival. This is not a revolution. It is also not a revival. And then the final thing that I think is easier for us standing several thousand years back from history than it would be for those who were standing around Jehu that day is to see that this is not a restoration of the kingdom of God in Israel. It is merely a delay on judgment. It is merely a partial reformation. So let's look then and see first that this is not a revolution. As we go to the beginning of the chapter, you may recall that in chapter 9, Jehu was anointed by Elisha's servant and told that he would be king. And he immediately responds as God drives history by going out and killing the king of Israel and the king of Judah. We need to remember that fact that all of this that is going on is at the bidding and the will of God. It is not a permissive thing that God is simply standing back, seeing what will happen, and will pick up the pieces later. God wants this to happen. He is driving history. And so Jehu then realizes that he has knocked off both of the kings, 
But like any other government, there is an entire sea of bureaucrats beneath them. As a matter of fact, Ahab, being the prolific Baal worshiper that he was, had 70 descendants here. Now, they're not directly sons, perhaps, of Ahab. Some of them may be grandsons. But there are 70 pretenders to the throne. And Jehu meets this head on. This is not what you call shuttle diplomacy. He says to the guardians of those who would be in line to the throne, okay, guys, you have the people, you have the weaponry, you've got the fortresses, let's see it. Meet me on Main Street at noon and we'll draw at 20 paces. It's almost like a scene out of High Noon with Gary Cooper standing there. He is... He is um, challenging Ahab's men to meet him on the field of battle. He wants to solidify his power, and so he has said, you know who would normally be next in line. It wouldn't be me. It would be a son. And so now, let's see if you're man enough to keep the throne. Now, these guardians are probably not glorified babysitters. I know sometimes when we think of of guardians, we think of seven or eight-year-old boys running around and people telling them to blow their nose and to um, button their shirts. These descendants of Ahab are likely men in their own right. And so these men that are being approached are guardians in the sense that they are mighty men. They are stalwarts in the community. They are the go-to Ahab gods. You have to understand that. These are not effeminate Butler types. Jehu is seriously challenging them. And they respond in a fashion that's quite interesting given the times. Look at verse 4. They are exceedingly afraid, the scripture tells us. And they say, well look, the two kings couldn't stand against him. How are we going to do anything? And they take a straw poll and they say, who wants to give up? And everybody raises their hand. And they say, okay, it's settled. We'll give up. Let's write letters back and say, we are your servants. We'll do anything that you want us to do. Now, they might have different motives for submitting. Perhaps the man who is in charge of the city doesn't want to see the city get attacked. Perhaps there are others who are worried a bit about their own skin. Or maybe they are just following in the long and undistinguished line of the elders of Naboth City who turned the other way when the going got tough. You see, courage is in short supply for those who do not trust the living God. For those who do not trust God to carry them through, they look around, see they don't have the means, and often giving up is the easiest thing to do. And so they say, we're willing to listen to you. You be the king. And then in verse 6, Jehu does something that's very interesting. He writes back to them a second letter. And he says in verse 6, If you are on my side, and if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come and meet me at Jezreel tomorrow. Now, do you notice the sarcasm in Ahab's response? They've just said, well, we're your servants, Jehu, not, not ours. And he responds with, well, take your master's son's heads and bring them over to me at Jezreel. He says, I'm not fully convinced 
that you're on my side. So I'm going to test your loyalty. I want to see if you are really loyal. I want you to make sure there will be no future pretender to the throne. And like good, cowardly, obedient men, they comply. These men who have been charged with protecting the heirs to the throne, they go out and they slaughter these 70 descendants of Ahab. But they're brave enough to carry out these orders, but they're still cowards at heart. Because look at what happens. In verse 6, Jehoah said, Come and bring. And in verse 7, they send the heads. You notice that? They don't even have the courage to go up and meet Jehu. They hope that simply a FedEx package will suffice. And so they cut off the heads of all of these descendants and they send them off to Jehu. And in what is almost a humorous fashion, you can almost hear the dry British voice of a butler who says, Master Jehu, the heads you ordered are here. Where shall I put them? And he says, go put them over by the gate. Stack them up over there. And as a historical aside, we know that this was a practice. The Assyrians, for example, were very accomplished at stacking heads. They could stack them very high. And you can imagine why one would do this. It's a pretty intimidating thing to see a pile of heads by a gate. You know who's in charge, don't you? And so... This happens during the middle of the night. The baskets come, and they're laid down, and the people wake up. Now imagine that you are a citizen of the town. You're not sure who's in charge. This is kind of like the recount in Minnesota. You're not quite sure who's going to end up in power at the end of the day and whose lawyers will sue whom. And then you get up and you see literally bushels of heads. It's a shocking thing. And Jehu comes out and he says to them, Now listen to me. You are innocent, in verse 9. It was I who killed my master. But who struck down all these? Now, it's as if Jehu is saying to them, Listen, you are fair-minded people. You didn't rebel against your king. I did. But look, here's all his dead sons. I have support and loyalty at the highest levels. I am in charge. And better yet, to oppose me is to oppose God. Because look at what happens to those who oppose God. It's a pretty frightening scene. And this is all of the rivals of Jehu being wiped out. He takes this authority and he moves on in verse 11. And he goes and he slays everyone who had any connection with Ahab. Anyone who could possibly oppose him, he kills. He takes this authority to the next level. And then in verse 13, we see some new people come onto the scene. They wander into town and they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. They are some men from Judah. And they're visiting their relatives. You may recall that Jehoshaphat made the colossal blunder of marrying his son to the daughter of Ahab. And so they have relatives, so they're up on a trip. They've likely come on the east side of the Jordan, up through the valley of the Jordan. And now they've taken a left-hand turn to come into Jezreel. 
and they show up and they don't know what's going on. And Jehu says to them, who are you and what are you doing here? And they say, well, we're here to visit our relatives, the relatives of Ahab. That's the wrong thing to say because Ahab has just been put on the blacklist. And so Jehu snaps his fingers and he says, take them alive. And after probably some painful questioning, he determines that they are to be wiped out as well. This is a golden opportunity. He can wipe out not only everybody who is pro-Ahab in Israel, he can wipe them out in Judah as well. He is securing his kingdom. There's one difficulty here, though. You may recall that the prophecy of Elijah didn't have anything to say about killing friends in Judah, did it? It only said that you were to wipe out the line of Ahab. So we're already starting to see politics taking over what might be a prophecy fulfillment. Keep that in the back of your mind. Jehu is not as white as the driven snow. He is securing his kingdom. He is securing his power. And so the next thing he sees is this man named Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. We know from a passage in Jeremiah, the descendants of Jehonadab describe him as one of these typical, let's go back to the old days, conservatives. He told them that they weren't allowed to do anything but to work on a farm. They had to stay away from city life. They couldn't do any of these newfangled things. He was a throwback kind of guy. The perfect guy for Jehu to link up with. He says, this has got to be the conservative element in Israel. If I link up with them and I've got the new power on my side, I'll really be in control. And so he says to Jehonadab exactly what he might want to hear. He says, come up and see my zeal for the Lord. This is a conservative move. He is solidifying his power with, dare we might say, the moral majority. Now, let's stop for a minute here and think about this as we think about the kingdom being secured. You've probably never heard of a politician taking a conservative social stance merely as a means to co-opt the church of God, have you? I'm sure that's never happened. Well, lest your CNN subscription be out, you can look back to the Middle Ages and to the Renaissance and see kings of France doing this exact same thing. Holy Roman emperors doing the exact same thing. Jehu here is securing his kingdom. God is working through him. God is driving history. But he's doing it in such a way that Jehu is still working out his own will and sin. You see, God does not need to take people over and make them robots for his will to be done. His will is so powerful, he is so sovereign, that he takes the actions of men and uses them for his purpose. He doesn't just find them, remember. He pushes them on to these actions. And so God is here working out a purge of Israel through his instrument, Jehu. We'll see a little bit later, he's going to work through his other instrument, Hazel. Well, 
This is not quite a revolution. It is a securing of power by one who has been anointed by the Lord for that purpose. So Jehu comes back into town, and he knows that Ahab's authority was really twofold. It was political, through political power, just ask Naboth. It was also religious, ask the prophets that Jezebel had killed. Ahab had supplanted the religion of Israel, whether it be the worship of the true God or whether it be the worship of the golden calves, and had brought in a Canaanite deity. He had brought in the worship of Baal. And so Jehu says, I'm going to fix this as well. And he prepares a trick. He says to the people, do you think that Ahab was pro-Baal? Well, let me tell you, he's got nothing on me. I really know how to worship Baal. Now imagine you're a priest of Baal. This is wonderful news. You might be on shaky ground not knowing what's going to happen. And here, the politician tells you he's all for your worship service. He loves your worship style. He's going to take it to the next level. This might seem as a welcome thing. This is also something that we see very often, isn't it? It's when we talk about politicians reaching across the aisle. And again, I imagine you've never seen a politician reach across the aisle and then break his promise, right? This is par for the course. But Jehu is working out a greater purpose, the purpose of God. Because our historian here lets us in on the secret. We look here at verse 19. He calls this worship of Baal, and he does it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And there's a great irony here. Jehu's message to the worshipers of Baal is, anyone who worships Baal and doesn't show up, I'm going to kill. The irony there is everybody who does show up is on the hit list. And so they, probably from fear, probably also from some hope, they all show up, and they are marked out with big red bullseyes. No, maybe not concentric circles, but big red vestments they are gowned with. And Jehu makes sure, he says, don't let there be one worshiper of the Lord there. You wouldn't want to stain your worship now, would you? Oh, no, of course not, of course not. And so they pack them in tight. Now, you can imagine, some of you have heard me describe our lobby in our new building and how one of the things that we think is going to happen is it's going to be packed in tight. Don't swing your elbows with coffee. That's what this temple is like. They pack in the worshipers of Baal. It's like one of those old cartoons where they're shoving people into a room or a phone booth, and they're pushing them in with their back, and it's almost like if you'd open the door, they'd all come piling out. They are stretched from mouth to mouth, the Scripture tells us. Everyone who worshiped Baal is here in this temple. Jehu has managed, or should we rather say, the Lord has managed to gather together everyone who worships Baal in one spot. This is actually kind of parallel to what happened on Mount Carmel, isn't it? When Elijah, call, Elijah called together all of the priests of Baal, and we know what happened to them. You see, the world wants to accuse the church and Christians of being naive 
and of not learning practical lessons or having common sense, when in reality, that's human nature. You would think the priests of Baal would be a bit smarter than to know that the last time they were all gathered together, they were killed. And this is not exactly the poster child for Ahab religion in Jehu, because he's just killed all of Ahab's family. But they want so much to believe that they are in power and that they are in control that they all come. And Jehu then finishes them off in what we might mistake for a revival. He eliminates all of the worshipers of Baal. Not just all of the worshipers, but he even gets rid of everything that is a part and parcel of Baal worship. He says to his 80 crack troops, don't let one person escape. And then they drag down the pillar of Baal and they destroy it, most likely by burning it with fire and then dumping cold water on it so it cracks and is destroyed. And then as if that is not bad enough, Jehu institutes a new government program. It's called the Temples to Toilets program. He turns this temple of Baal that's supposed to be this holy place into a public latrine. God has so completely wiped out the worship of Baal from Israel through his servant Jehu that it has been consigned to exactly the place it should be, a public toilet. Baalism has been completely wiped out. But there's something we should see here. Israel is back to the place where it was before Ahab came on the scene. But it's not back with God, is it? You see, that's the difference between a partial reformation and a revival. You see, if this were a real revival and Jehu had real belief in the Lord, he would have not gone back to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He would not have reestablished the civic religion of Israel. He would have founded back the true religion of the true God. But he's not interested in that. He's just interested in having a better looking mess. He's tidied up the room, but he hasn't gone through with a scrub brush and cleaned it. This is often the case with the church, isn't it? The church seeks to reform things. Especially as we look out at the state of the church in America, we want reform. But the question then comes to us. Is what we want real revival? Or do we just want better looking religion? Would you enjoy it? Would it thrill your heart if you went home today? And this week, as you came home from work, there were bands of young people roving the streets singing songs. Because that's what happened in the Great Awakening. Would it thrill your heart if instead of going to the fashionable churches, our senators, our Supreme Court justices, our president, instead went to hear R.C. Sproul preach? Or to hear those who were pushing evangelism and pushing a commitment by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, who were flocking to reform churches who were seeking to hold up the word of God because that's what happened even to unbelievers in the Great Awakening. 
Benjamin Franklin couldn't wait to hear George Whitfield preach. Or are we like the rest of the church, seeking simply to find comfort in the fact that our building is cleaner than most, our language is better than most, our programs are better than most, our Bible versions are better than most? Do you seek true revival here in Katy, in Houston, and in America? Or are you willing to stop halfway like Jehu? You see, you, Christian, and I have an advantage over Jehu. Jehu did not have the spirit of the living God within him, prompting him to obey God's word, pushing him on to not only do God's will, but to delight in it. As God's children, we have that spirit. We have that desire to see revival spring up in our midst, to not be satisfied with simply getting rid of the worst of the muck and the mire. This is real revival. Well, all of this might seem just a bit convenient. Jehu is describing how God has fulfilled his word and that all of Ahab's men have been wiped out. But we must remember that God himself, through his word, says that this is exactly what I am doing. In verse 17 and in verse 30, we are reminded that this is indeed the fulfillment of the word of God. Well, if this is not a revolution and this is not a revival, perhaps it's then a restoration that will build up toward better things. The only problem is, is that from verse 28 on, we realize that that's not the case either. Look at verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. It starts out on a very good note. Now, you must suspend your knowledge of biblical history here for a moment. You must say to yourself, if I were a worshiper of the true God, in Israel, in the ninth century B.C., would I ever think I would hear the words of verse 28? Think about it. Think about the story of the kingdom of Israel, from bad to worse, from frying pan to fire. Ahab and Jezebel and Elisha run off the scene, and the prophets killed, and the temple is huge. And we might look at that and say, this is the way it's going to be. There's no way Baal is ever going to be run out. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's an interesting point, but we don't have Baal worshippers, and, and I don't live in 9th century B.C. Israel. The question I ask you is, do you have confidence that verse 28 will be found in the world today? With a slight tweet, where it will say, Thus, the scourge of abortion was wiped out from the land. Is that your confidence and hope? That's no worse than publicly sanctioned Baal worship. Do you have confidence in Jesus Christ to be the victor of victors, to come and to wipe out the scourge of evolution, the scourge of abortion, the scourge of homosexuality, the scourge of idolatry? That is your hope, Christian. And you need not find it in a partway, partly reforming, 
egotistical politician named Jehu. The Lord Jesus Christ has told us that he is coming again. And that will be a true restoration. And there will be righteousness from sea to sea. Perhaps, if he tarries, the Lord will work out his will through his instruments, through his people, through his church. We must have confidence and we must continue to work for real godly revolution, real revival, and real restoration. You see, because Jehu has overthrown apostasy. Verse 28 makes us proud. There's only one problem with verse 28. Verse 29 follows. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel at Dan. And so our historian, as he often does, gives us this two-beat drum. There is commendation. Jehu has wiped out Baal. Well, but golden calf worship is bad. And then look again at verse 30. And the Lord said to Jehu, "You, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done according to the house of Ahab, done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And again, commendation. But look at verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. You see, there's commendation, but there is oh so deadly qualification. Jehu goes part way, but no further. He's a politician at heart. And he does get this very interesting Davidic like promise. You notice that in verse 30? His sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. The short version of the math here is, is Jehu is about to begin the longest reigning dynasty in the history of the kingdom of Israel. Longer than Jeroboam's, longer than Ahab's. For 102 years, his family will sit on the throne of Israel. It's also interesting that God uses this word that you have carried out what is right in my eyes. The only time that right is used as this word in the books of Kings is to describe David or one of the good kings of Judah. The only exception is here. That may give you some idea of how seriously God takes false worship and the worship of Baal. What Jehu has done is a good thing. He just hasn't gone far enough. And so we might say, well, I guess a limited blessing, four generations, is a pretty good deal for half-hearted zeal. He doesn't get the same promise that David gets. And God shows us that he is working out his will in Israel through this instrument, Jehu. It's a messy instrument. I was trying to think of a way last night to describe this. And so um, I asked my wife, tell me something that perhaps men and women do and there's a difference in the way that it's done, but it's the same kind of result. 
And so as I thought about this, you know, sometimes illustrations take the most time in the sermon. I thought about cooking. And I thought about perhaps you've been to someone's home for a, a lovely dinner. And it's laid out and the napkins are in the right spot. And I didn't set the table so the fork and the knife and the spoon are all in the right spot. And there are serving dishes that match the silverware. It's not, you know, go to the stove and scoop off the out of the pot. And you have a wonderful meal and you enjoy it. And afterwards you relax and think, this is a pleasant evening. Then there may be another time where you've had the blessing of being over at the Bristers when Daryl makes jambalaya. And he's got this big old iron pot that he cuts things up and he dumps it in and he lets it cook and he gets you a plate and he dumps it on the plate and he hands it over to you. And you eat it and you think, this is really good. And after you're done, you say, this is a really pleasant evening. And you don't worry about the fact that you didn't know where the napkins were or that you weren't even given a knife because you didn't need one. Another analogy you might take is the way sometimes laundry is done. You know when college students come home and they do laundry the fun way. They put it on extra big load and they shove everything that they can possibly shove into the washer and it runs and they pull it out and hopefully they haven't put anything red in and so it comes out okay. And then mom comes along and says, that's not what you do. You separate out colors, you separate out fabrics, you use different softeners. And at the end of the day, the wash is done, right? Sometimes it's a little bit messier than others. We need to realize as the church of God that that's sometimes the way that God works. He works messy, through messy instruments, like Jacob. It isn't always neat and clean. As we look out over our society, in our families, in our situations, we need to realize that God has the liberty to act not only to do what he wills, but how he wills. And sometimes, God uses bent sticks, messy instruments. That's what Jehu is like. It's a messy solution. It's so messy that we realize that Jehu doesn't escape judgment himself. This is not a restoration of good times in Israel because we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We know that Jehu is on his way out. We know his family will not survive and the kingdom will not survive because our historian has told us. The Holy Spirit has said, well, it's a good thing not to worship Baal, but it's not very bright to go back to the sins of Jeroboam. And that's exactly what Jehu does. And God begins to show Jehu that judgment can come at you, not just from you. And he sends Hazel to begin to carve up like a big stuck pig, the kingdom of Israel. The language is actually very colorful. If we look here at verse 32, in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. The language there being cut off is having chunks or hunks whacked off of something. And you can almost imagine it. Well, we lost the northern Transjordan, king. What can we do? I don't know. It seems like nothing we can do can stop Hazel. It's almost like God is on his side. Well, we lost the middle Transjordan, king. Well, what can we do? I don't know. He just keeps whacking away at us. It's almost like 
God is on his side. No, that can't be. He's a Syrian. You see, what Jehu didn't realize, I think, because he would have repented otherwise, is something that we should. And that it is a very fearful thing to know that God can judge those whom he uses as instruments of judgment and his work. You see, Jehu is a servant of the Lord when he wipes out Baal worship. But that doesn't give him a free pass. He doesn't walk in the ways of the Lord. He walks in the sins of Jeroboam. He will still be judged. Now you may say, well, that's okay. Not planning on worshiping any golden calves anytime soon. Perhaps more frightening to you would be the words of Matthew 7. Verses 21 to 23. Where the line forms up before our Lord and they say, we did all kinds of neat things, Lord. We cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We did all kinds of stuff to forward your will and kingdom. And our Lord says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you see, the relationship that we have to the Lord is not through the things that we do. It's not through the revolutions we cause or want to, or the revivals that we think we bring about, or the restoration of God's work here on earth. It is through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what makes all of these things have meaning. So the question then comes, where is hope? Can you find it in your circumstances? Can you find it in rulers or in powers? How about in morality? or in civic duty, perhaps public religious expressions, all the things that I think would make our world a better place than it is now. Is that where your hope is found? Your only hope should be found in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great security of the believer in Christ. That is the great hope for those who are not in Christ if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, seek Him. Do not begin to reform your life. Do not worry about what laws the politicians will pass. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ, His kingdom, and His righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You are indeed our God and our King. That you are the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing. And your will can never be thwarted. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your sovereignty and power. That we might serve you and love you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Mm -hmm.